Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 25. We're going to read together. It says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each other with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such word is good for edification according to the need at the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ is also forgiven you. Father, we thank you for the Word, the living Word, Jesus Christ. The written Word that tells us what's right and what's wrong and how to get right and, and how to stay right. Thank You for Your Spirit that fills our life, that directs us and guides us, makes us sensitive to sin and convicts us of that sin when we need to change. And then empowers us to make those changes. Lord, we look to You to bring illumination, to bring understanding, and to help me communicate clearly Your Word. So, Lord, give us ears to hear, spiritual ears, that we would hear You speak to us individually and congregationally to Your truth, the truth that will set us free. And all God's people said, Amen. This week I've titled our message, Walking in the Power of the Spirit. I'm not talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We, we talked about those, and we've been talking about those. But we're talking about when a person comes to believe in Jesus Christ, there is a change. And we walk, our walk is differently, and we need to walk in the power of the Spirit. We need to rely upon the Spirit of God to guide us, to direct us, and help us walk in that truth. Now, if you remember at conversion, the one that is born again, if you remember, when that person's mind and heart is open, they make a 180 at 60. As if you're going down the freeway, it's 60 miles an hour, and all of a sudden somebody just turns around and goes the other direction. And that's what a believer does. An unbeliever becomes a believer, and he walks in a total opposite direction. And now he's going to explain what that direction looks like. How are we to, to live that life? And, and there's a series of things as we continue through the Word that we're going to see. And a lot of this is going to be about relationships. We're going to see as we go through this chapter, relationships now, uh, again, with others. One of the common problems in every church is relationship 
problems, whether it be in a congregation, in a workplace, in a family. And all of these are going to be addressed as we go through the word the next few weeks. Believers now, as they make this 180 at 60, they learn how to walk. And as I mentioned in the title, they learn to walk in the power of the Spirit. Because if they've been born again, the Spirit of God indwells them, the Spirit of God empowers them to walk and resist temptation. Also, the Spirit gives them the power to be an overcomer because they are an overcomer. They learn to put off the things of the flesh and put on the things of the Spirit. See, we often think of salvation as a one-time event. We know someone that has made a decision for Christ, let's say, and they're saved. And while I believe in eternal salvation It's only as that person walks down that path do you and I really realize this person is saved or maybe this person is not saved at all. Because oftentimes people trust in what they do, what they say, and the real evidence where the rubber meets the road is how do you live your life for Jesus Are you submitted to him? Are you trusting in him? Are you growing in that love and grace of Jesus Christ? That's what reflects a person, whether they're born again or not. It's not whether they praise God or they're coming to church or they're serving in a ministry. That doesn't necessarily mean anything because there are many people, pastors even, that are not even saved. Evangelists, they're not even saved evangelists we've seen in church history that lead many people to the Lord and walk away and never come back to the Lord. People in children's ministry in every facet. But the key is, is walking in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Look with me in 1 John Chapter 2, verse 4 on the screen. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. And it's here, the one who is born again is the one who keeps that word. Now, he's not talking about perfection because God is the one that will perfect you and me and he will finish that work in you and me at some point. But when we're walking in that way, when we're walking with the Lord, we can have that assurance that we're going to heaven because his spirit will testify with your spirit that I'm saved. Not because... I say it or someone else says it, but you know that you're walking and your walk you're concerned about, does it honor Jesus Christ? And when you see that happen, when you see that in someone's life, aren't you encouraged? When you see someone walking in the Lord, sharing the Lord, well, let me go just for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Notice a man must examine himself 
And this is in reference, first of all, to communion. Whenever we take communion, but the principle is still going to be the same, I'm showing you, that we are to examine ourselves. Are you at the place you really want to be? Have you moved forward or have you moved backwards? We heard Steve speak about he's not where he wants to be. He knows where he wants to be. And he knows it's God's going to bring him along that path. And when we recognize we're not in the place where we want to be, it helps us surrender to the Holy Spirit to entrust ourselves to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit do that work in us. Look again at 2 Corinthians 13.5. Notice it says, test yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Now, if you remember, again, those Christians, professing Christians in Corinth, were condemning Paul, finding fault in Paul. They weren't listening to the truth. And he's challenging to test yourselves, to examine yourselves, to see if you're of the faith. That's something hard, isn't it, for us to do, to really say, Lord, am I at the place? Am I living like you? What about the words that come out of my mouth, Lord? Are they the words that bring glory to you? What about... The actions. Am I loving? Am I forgiving? Am I esteeming others higher than myself? See, it means I need to put myself vulnerable before the Lord. The Lord already knows our heart. But it means I have to stop and I have to sit with the Lord and learn to listen to the Lord. Now remember first... There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I am so thankful for that. Because he will show you your shortcomings. And he said, you know what? I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to strengthen you. And I'm going to give you that power to overcome. See, every person that has been born again is a new creature. A new creature in Christ. In fact, all new creatures act like new creatures, don't they? You're not going to act the same old way. There, there needs to be a change. Again, going back to that idea of 180, there's been a, a 180 change in your life. Sometimes there's a 180 today and there needs to be another maybe 90 in six months because we drift back and forth. Do, do we understand that? But God is gentle. God will guide you. God will lead me. See, God, again, is not progressively making new creatures out of believers. They are. We need to believe that we're new creatures in Christ, that, that, that we are believers, we're born again, and therefore we need to act and live as if we are new creatures in Christ, walking in the truth as he walked in the truth. Walk in love as he walks in love. So you're either a new creature in Christ or you're not born again. Because that new creature is speaking about someone who has been born again, someone who is regenerated. 2 Corinthians 5.17, let me just read. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
our position first is in Christ, now we practically need to live that way. And God expects that. He's given us his spirit, enabling us to walk in a way that brings glory to him, a way that brings peace to our heart, that brings love to a world that is unloving, unkind, merciless. And we're to bring love to them. And that is hard, isn't it? It's hard to love the neighbor that's throwing his trash over the fence in your yard. That's blasting the stereo at 3 o'clock in the morning and you've got to get up at 5. You know. We've all experienced that. Or someone in the grocery store that is just ramming the cart into you again and again and again. Or when you're driving, they cut you off and then give you the finger. And you smile at them with love and you pray for them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And that is true. They do not know what they do. They do what is normal because they're born of the flesh and not born of the Spirit. And that could be very true of you in me in our past life impatient, unloving, unkind. In fact, Paul, speaking in Romans chapter 6, this is the very thing that he is he's talking about. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. The very God that spoke all things into creation lives in you. I mean, the question really rises, why me? Why me? I can't figure that out, and I'm, I'm going to quit trying to figure that out. I just know that He's come into my life. I know that He's drawing me with cords of love, and He has drawn you because you are here today. And he wants you and I to go out and share that same love. Now, as we've been looking again at, at our text that we saw in chapters 1 through 3, we, we saw again that Paul identified, again, what believers are in Christ, our position in Christ. You're safe. You're secure. Your life is hid in Christ. You're a Christian. You're born again. You have an inheritance. You're saved by grace through faith. See, our hope is in Jesus Christ and the position. You're kept by the power of God until that day. Our part is to surrender. But as we come to chapter 4, especially again as we've been looking at verses 1 through 24, he begins the basic instructions of life. It's boot camp in a sense. The basics. How often do we need to return to the basics? We need to walk basically in the basics all the time. But some of us, we get caught up. We get carried away. We get moved over here. We go to the right. We go to the left. And we have to come back and have the basics all over. The simplicity of the gospel. Who Jesus Christ is. 
what he's done and what he wants to do in your life and my life. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever said, I'm fine, but you're really not? What about, or sorry, I I, I can't take a call now. It's really nice on the iPhones. You can slide over. I, I can't talk right now. And you could. Or you said you were stuck in traffic and you weren't. And you just didn't leave early enough to get there. Big or small, lies are lies. For a Christian, they should have no place in our lives. See, these are things that will destroy our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our bosses. See, Paul's given us these basics. One, two, three, and we have to go back to one, two, three, Again, because it's so easy to drift. We still have that old nature that will just kind of, if we don't keep it in check, drift off. Based upon a Reader's Digest poll, no, I don't read Reader's Digest, but it was an illustration I read that I liked. It says over 90% of the population lies. Lies regularly, lies to friends, family, associates, even to ourselves. We've learned that about Some of our presidents, they tend to believe their own lies even after a while. Well, the consequences of dishonesty are disastrous and eventually very destructive for us and those around us. Think about your own life for a moment. Has lying become a habit? It's really easy to lie, isn't it? When someone assumes something, you did something good, and you kind of smile and take credit for something that you didn't do. Sometimes maybe you have a a deadline to have certain things done at at, at work, and and you tell them it's, it's done, but it's not done. And on and on these things go that you and I, are put in these situations. In fact, every day, you and I are tempted to lie every day. Not only tempted to lie, but tempted to steal. And this is what these basics that we're going through today. How should we deal with them? These ultimately reveal the real character inside us. And we have to ask that question that I asked earlier. How? Not how are you doing, how am I doing? It starts with me and you individually. It's not for me to examine someone else. As the scripture says, examine myself. Test myself. See, what Paul is going to to bring us from is, is really from lies to speaking the truth. See, we're children of light, children of the truth, and, and this is how we are to walk in truth. Look at verse 25. It says, therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak the truth, each other, or each one, 
as with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Revelation 22.8 makes it very clear that liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. To live a life of habitual lying brings us to a place that none of us here want to be and reveals whether we're really believers or not believers. And you thought you are coming for an encouraging message today. But it is an encouraging message when the truth is spoken to redirect us to the place that we need to be and how we're to live. So what is lying? I mean, that's an easy one, isn't it? It's presenting what is known to be false with intent to deceive because that's really what we are as a deceiver when we tell a lie because we don't want them to really know the truth about us, the situation, what's going on here. Lying is always deliberate. It's a deviation from the truth itself. Lying in the Greek word is pseudos or another way of saying it is pseudo or false Christ, and there are many false Christs, John says, that have already in the world 2,000 years ago, and there are many more today. Pseudo means simply false or lie. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who blessed them forever. See, lying is really exchanging the truth for a lie. If you're a child of truth, you want to walk in the truth, you want to be found in the truth. That's very important. Lying really breaks down into two categories, really, of deceivers. Now, every one of us lies. Not hopefully daily, but all of us sometimes spontaneously say something. Have I lied? Yes, unfortunately. What do I need to do when I do? Confess and repent. And we need to confess our sins to one another when we lie to one another. And be honest with one another. And that's what the Scripture is teaching. So really, these liars really break down into two categories. They're verbal liars that speak knowing what is false, intending to mislead people. And then there's the nonverbal liars. They're living a life of lie. They're, they're professing, I'm a Christian, or I never lie, or I, I never do this. But still, the intent is to deceive because we want people to see us in a different light than is true. Two categories, verbal and second is nonverbal, living a hypocritical life. Habitual liars are those who have a seared conscience, as with a branding iron. A person that's in the body of Christ, sadly, can sear their conscience. But when we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin, we keep a clean conscience and a sensitive conscience to the Lord. Well, what does living a lie look like? Well, it's living a false 
illusion. It's pseudo, as I said. It's sometimes thinking that we are gods. We're in control of our own destiny. And the only way that you and I are ever in control of our destiny is when we surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You cannot save yourself. All you can do is surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible makes it very clear. There are false brothers. There are false teachers. There are false witnesses. There are false prophets and false apostles and false Christ. I get real leery when people come up and they, they give me a card and say, Hi, I'm I'm apostle. I'm a prophet. Focusing upon them instead of Christ. People live the lie. And we're warned to discern, to test the spirits, to see whether they're of God. Look at Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. God knows your heart. God knows what you're going to say before you even speak it. You can live the lie, but God knows. And I used to think, I, 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 I like it that you really don't know what I'm thinking. And then I thought, well, okay, what about God? And boy, did that change my thinking when God knows. And with a clear, sensitive conscience, it began to help me think about others. You've been wronged, I've been wronged, right? And we want to be angry, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But why not just forgive them? Wash the slate clean. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We live a lie. Satan lies. He's the father of the lies. He lies about God and Christ and life and salvation and heaven and hell. It's okay. You can do it. You can get away with it. Nobody knows. God knows. Every false religious system, every cult is built upon a lie. And various, really, deceptions of Satan It's the doctrine of demons, the Bible calls it. Even though there may be a little truth, it's the poison that denies Jesus of his rightful position of God and glory and holiness. Notice again Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be again in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I mean, that's enough to get us detourists. Liars are put in with murderers. I don't murder people. I'm a good person. Sin is sin. Again, as I mentioned last week, why not just say, I sinned? Why not just say I lied and get it off our chest, confess that sin and move on and feel better and honor God? Again, John 8, 44 says, 
you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because he because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we are walking in what is false, what is walking in a lie, our lies are identifying with Satan. There's a red flag come up. I have to examine myself. You have to examine yourself. Where am I going? Am I submitting to God or am I submitting to the devil? It's as simple as, Cheating in school, income tax, taking credits that you really haven't done. It, it's, it's really all kinds of foolish promises and betraying confidence in people. Flattery. You could say, oh, you look so beautiful today. And then you didn't tell her there's a big hunk of junk in their teeth. There's ways to say things to people because you love them. But don't lie. Don't make excuses for lying. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Christians should have no part of lying. The believer is, is, is to be characterized by laying aside this falsehood. This is a mark of a believer. Love, yes, but also laying aside lies, any falsehood in our lives, living any hypocritical way. It's incompatible being in Christ. Look at John sixteen thirteen. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you in all truth, for He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. This is the Spirit of truth. He will guide us, He will lead us, he will fill us. Look again at 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us love with word and with tongue, but in deed and truth. Little children, he's speaking. And this is not talking about little kids. This is talking, again, the body of Christ. John saw them dear. He's a, an old man at this time. He's looking. They're little children in Christ. Again, John, 2 John 1.4. And I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth as we have received the commandment to do from our Father. John writing about this church and there's several views upon Some say it's a family. Either way it works. John sees these individuals walking in the truth and he's encouraged and he's praising God. He's, in, he's saying, this is encouraging to me and when I hear it about someone in this body that has done something or someone in the body of Christ and doing something glorifies God, I'm so encouraged, I'm so built up, I'm so edified. And that's what we're called to do. To live in such a way that brings glory to God. And last people walk in the truth, in function as God has called us, there can never be, honestly, a work that brings glory to God. When there's sin in the camp, it will hinder and affect the whole camp. We cannot effectively minister to each other. Minister in this community unless we speak the truth 
in love, especially among the fellow brethren. Well, Paul moves in verse 26 from unrighteous anger to righteous anger. I don't even want to ask, does anyone struggle with anger here? We all struggle with anger. God never, ever tells us, don't be angry. But He tells us how to direct that anger. It needs to be reguided. Look at verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. The word for anger means to be or become anger. It's, it's provoked. It's, it's like a boiling up. The word actually means a, a boiling over, inward. It can be a brewing to a point of wanting to get revenge. Now there's two Hebrew idioms that are used. One is, is the nose and the other is the nostrils. You know, the nose, again, turns red in, in, in the nostrils. You'll find it when you're going through Proverbs. They, they flare up. And you, you can tell someone when they're angry. And it's talking about what we call body language today. And you know when someone's mad at you. They're fuming at you. They're turning away from you. They don't want to look at you. Or if they're looking, they're looking with a look that's going to kill you. And any godly Christian, it will grieve their hearts. The idea is that a person, again, when he becomes angry, expresses it with the nose became hot. A lot of the things that come into our language, this is where it comes from, is the Bible. It's seen anyways in this passage. Anger will represent emotion. It can be good or it can be bad. Depending on our motive and depending upon our purpose. Paul's command is to be angry and, and sin not. Well, look with me in Matthew 5.22. Notice what it says. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Just to be angry at somebody is showing our attitude. It should not be within the body of Christ. It's okay to be angry but not where we're wanting to destroy and seek revenge, get even, that we're letting it brew. In fact, jump down in our text today to verse 31 and 32. Notice what it says. Let all bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, if we don't deal with that anger, it turns into a bitter root is the idea. It brews and brews and brews. They buy into the lie and they allow Satan to fester them. Jesus certainly expressed anger, righteous anger, at the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees. If you remember the man that had the withered hand and he healed him on the Sabbath, let me show you in Mark 3, verses 4 and 5, and looking around at, at them with anger, grieved, the hardness of their heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out a hand. And his 
hand was restored. Jesus was concerned about this man and they had no concern. They had one agenda. That was to trap him. The man was a pawn. The moment that we forget people, if you forget people in ministry, you have forgotten God because Jesus Christ died upon the cross for every single man on this planet. But the choice is theirs. So Jesus looks again. He's, he's looking around at them with anger. This is called a righteous anger. But notice what's coupled with that. Grieved at the hardness of their heart. See, an anger is, is really concerned. It, it, it's really concerned. It's not selfish. We'll talk about that more in a second. It's, it's other-centered. When somebody is wronging somebody, hurting someone. Look again in Matthew 21, verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. Jesus was angered because one, they were fleecing the people. They were taking advantage of the people all for the sake of their own personal greed and then robbing God of His glory. Their motive was impure. Jesus' motive was to glorify the Father. Concern about the people. See, anger that is sin, on the other hand, is an anger that is self-defensive. Self-serving, it's resentful of what someone has done or said about you. It's all about me in a situation like that instead of all about Jesus. We should see others as Jesus sees them. The Bible tells us, again, this kind of anger can, can lead to murder and to God's judgment. Matthew 5, and we saw that 21 and 22. So the anger that is selfish and undisciplined again is vindictive and it's sinful in God's eyes. It has no place, even a temporary place in the believer's or Christian's life. In contrast, the anger that is unselfish based upon love for God and love for people or concern for others is permissible, but how we deal with it is very important. Very few of us, I believe, walk in righteous anger. I've seen people angry about things that, that have mocked God, but more or less to notch a notch on their belt. Not really concerned about God Himself. About my faith. And not about God. That we should be grieved when we see people that way because they're blind. Blinded by the God of this world. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We need to begin to pray and ask for an opportunity to minister or someone else to minister. Where God, show Your glory in some way that they would know that You and You are God alone. Genuine love cannot help being angered, it, it really, things that injure someone of love, God or, or others. 
That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In fact, let me go on in that passage in Romans 12, 20 and 21. Let me begin again. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals upon his head. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That the idea is that if you see a, 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 and someone who hates you, despises you, and he needs food, you have something that you can bless him with. Blessing. God will use that in a powerful way. You know, that's the greatest need as I was talking about today within the body of Christ is mature Christians that simply go into this world and love people. Love those that are wronging and hurting because when people are watching, they're baffled. It makes no sense at all. And it's like heaping coals upon the head. It's blessings and, and there's a conviction. Here, here I'm hating this person. Here I'm doing everything I can to destroy this person. And this person is nice to me. And there's a conviction that the Holy Spirit uses. Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap the burning coals upon his head and the Lord will reward you. God wants you to be his witness. This is one of the ways that you and I can be a witness in this world. It's just simply doing the right thing. Now the Bible uh, tells us, it doesn't tell us that we shouldn't feel angry, but he points to the importance of dealing with anger properly. If our anger is to be vented thoughtlessly, it can hurt and, and be a destroyer. I'm going to stop there for a point and for a moment because before I became a believer, I was very patient, as Brent said. Patience. But then when I enough is enough, I became a destroyer. It ought not be. And God changed me because I'm a new creature in Christ. If you're a new creature in Christ, He will change you as we submit those things, as we confess those sins to Him, and God changes. God doesn't want us to be bottled up with these things. God wants to set us free from this bitterness that destroys us. He doesn't want anger to fester in us because what will happen is we're giving the devil an opportunity to divide us. He wants us to deal quickly with it because if we don't, it will destroy the relationships. But if we deal quickly with it, we will build one another up in Christ. Look at verse 28. He takes us from stealing to sharing. He who steals must steal no longer. How many have stole something here today? Not today, but how many have stole something? I, you know, come on, thou shalt not lie. Every one of us has stole something. I know, pride gets in the way. It's hard, isn't it? See, he's saying, he who steals must steal no longer. Actually, the wording could be, Everyone steals, but steal no more. As we get older and wiser, we think we can justify our stealing. 
When I was young, it was just candy. It was the cookies that mom said no. Paper clip here and there. In fact, as he says, stop it. But we should be, if you want something, work for it. And that's the idea, is that we, we need to stop stealing. Steal no longer. You know that word, steal? Klepto. We get the word kleptomaniac. So that makes, if you guys stole, you guys are a bunch of kleptos. You're a bunch of thieves. Kleptomaniacs. That's if you do it habitually. That's what we did in the past, but we don't do that today because we're a new creature in Christ. We made a 180 at 60. Shoplifting, as I mentioned, is alarming. The, the rates that are going up. Stealing, again, cheating on our taxes, embezzlement, padding expense accounts with the company and, and gas receipts. Second Thessalonians 3.10 makes it very clear. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this in order. And if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Notice the wording, if anyone is not willing to work. Some people are unable to work. And we may have an opportunity to help them, and that's wonderful. But that one that's able to work, and he's not willing because he'd rather steal, it's the easier way, he's to stop, and he start to do the thing right, and now he's to have extra that he can share with someone else. That's how we're to live our lives. That's the way that we glorify God. First Timothy, Again, 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of the household, of his household, he has denied the faith and worse, an unbeliever. There's the very evidence that we're, we're trying to supply. Now, some people are going to have more than others because they have different gifts, different abilities. Every person in the body of Christ is important. Every person, because sometimes people that are struggling, that keeps his brain. That gives us that opportunity to share and give to others that aren't as fortunate. Our labor should be for what is good in a work that is honest, it's honorable, and it's to be productive. No Christian, though, should ever be involved in a job, a profession, a work, a business that demands a compromise of God's values. No, he's not putting you there to witness. There's a point where you and I have to stand for righteousness and say, you know what, I, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm not going to do what is wrong. Because if I choose to do what's wrong, I am compromising. Is that not true? I'm compromising the truth that he's told. Now, if you've been there, and every one of us probably at some point have been there, we need to confess and repent and move on and know that he separated our sins as far as the east is from west. Look at verse 29. We're going to see from unwholesome words to wholesome words. See this change. We're new creatures in Christ. Let no, no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need at the moment so that you will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We see the fourth change in the Christian's life is to be speaking no unwholesome words, but only what is wholesome, only what is edifying. Now that, that word for unwholesome is, is sarpros. It refers to that is corrupt and foul. 
used of rotten fruit or vegetables or old spoiled meat that the maggots are in. Yeah, that's the idea. And that sometimes he's liking that that can come from our mouth. That our conversations are not edifying. Unwholesome language is repulsive is what he's saying. Off-color jokes, profanity, dirty stories, vulgarity. Every form of corrupt talk should never flow from the lips of a believer. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Keep a watchman there. Watch over me. It's so easy to say something. It's so easy to enter in a, a conversation, to listen, be a part of something we should not be. Look with me at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Ephesians 4.29, look again, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such word that is good for edification, that I should be looking to build one another up with positive words. And those words, I like what, again, what it says in Proverbs 25.11, they're like these words, they're like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. Do you ever say something that just lifts a person's spirit? Just causes them just to radiate and glow? Just the answer that you need. That's a word from God. When God puts that word in your mouth, brings that scripture back, that's how the words are to come from us. You know what's hard? It, it, it means that sometimes we just, forgive me, need to shut up and not say some things sometimes until God puts that word upon our heart. It's a powerful motivation for us putting off, again, this unwholesome talk if your actions and your words will grieve the Holy Spirit of God. To think that you and I grieve. I'm going to say this, and think about this. God is not mad at you when you sin. God is not mad at you when something comes from your lips. It shouldn't. God grieves. We have a loving God that's so concerned that wants to take that burden. He wants you to cast the burdens and cares upon Him. He wants you to confess that sin that you can move on in that relationship. But right then, when you and I are walking in sin... We not only are separated from Him, that's our sins is what separates us, but we're grieving Him. And you understand that as a parent, when you see your kids make choices they should have never made, and you know the consequences of it, you know the pain, the sorrow. How much more a Heavenly Father that is perfect love, and you and I are not perfect love, that we can grieve God. Verse 31 and Again, in 32, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Man's tendency 
if we're honest with one another, is to sin. We're bent towards sin. If you have a choice, you're, you're like water, it's going to take you the easiest path, and sometimes that's what we do. We take what seems to be the easiest path, and we get down that path and we go, oh my Lord, how did I get here? I wasn't listening. That's really what it boils down to. I hadn't determined what I'm going to do when I come to that place. Man's tendency and natural tendency is to sin and grow in greater sin. That's what you were doing before you became a believer. But now that you're a new creature in Christ, you are an overcomer. And if you believe that and know that, then you can overcome bitterness. That smoldering, again, resentment, that brooding grudge that's in you. You don't have to be bitter. Because Christ is in your heart. Bitterness is the evidence of really a sinful heart. Again, we choose to sin. Look again at Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. He's writing this to believers. It's so easy for believers to fall into this rut, get into this groove, and this is why he warns us that we do not end up in that place. See, we've all known bitter persons. Perhaps we've been bitter. We've been angry. Feelings that have turned into that bitterness at some point. Bitterness is unpleasant. It's wrong. And it's sin. It has no place in the body of Christ. He goes on and lists several other things. Wrath, which is wild rage and, and passion of the moment and anger. Again, this eternal smoldering Deep feelings that, that sometimes people are just so angry. Begin praying for people. You cannot remain angry at someone if you pray for them. God, bless them. Bless them with your presence. Open their heart up. Not punch them. Not you know get even with them. But really pray for them. And when you pray blessings upon them, you know that anger, it, it's, it's going to go away. Slander is another one that it's really the ongoing, really talking about people, just defaming their, their character. It's tied to gossip. It ought not be in a person. And if that's true with you or me or someone else we know, they're in sin. They need to confess. They need to repent. But it's not always your job and my job to go and talk to them. You need to really pray. You need to check your own heart. Why do you want to say something? Sometimes it's because we've been hurt. We've been wronged by them and we want to put them in place. I could ask you to hold your hands up and I think imagine most of us have wanted to put people in place. But that's wrong too. Again, he talks about malice denoting evil and wickedness. Generalizing any moral depravity whatsoever. And this is the root for all vices when you stop and think about it. All these things need to be put away, put off. And, and really, if we put them off, we need to put on Christ. We need to put on praise. We need to put on joy and love. These specific sins, understand, involve conflict. Conflict with people, uh, or a person with person, or a believer with an unbeliever. Worse yet, one believer with another believer. What kind of witness and testimony is that to the world if we can't even get along ourselves? 
relationships are fractured. The church is weakened. The testimony of the church is marred. It should not be in the body of Christ. But sadly, it is. Notice at the end of that passage, in the place of all these vices, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven us. God has been so gracious to us. We need to be gracious to others. We need to be tender-hearted, forgiving our fellow sinners, especially one another. As long as we walk in this way, we'll walk worthy of the calling that God has called us. And we will not grieve the Holy Spirit as we began chapter 4. That was the thought. Walk worthy of the calling because you're new creatures in Christ.